Uh, the title of today's sermon is, What is the Gospel? What is the Gospel? And I'm going to read a passage of Scripture to you from the book of Romans, chapter 1. Uh, book of Romans, chapter 1, starting at verse 1. And I just want you to hear it. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4, I think. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Father, I pray today in the name of the Lord Jesus that you'd speak to us mightily by the power of your word and spirit. Give us understanding, give us grace, give us insight. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would inspire and empower our hearts to truly believe the gospel. I pray it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen and amen and amen. There is a popular gospel that's being preached specifically in America. It is a popular gospel that was designed to grow churches. And that popular gospel has a threefold core. At the core of that gospel is three points. Number one, Jesus loves everyone. Which is true, right? Number two, come just as you are. Which is true, right? And number three, receive God's blessings which is true, right? But when you put those three points at the core of your gospel, you've got something less than the gospel. Those three things are all true in their proper context, but when you take those three truths and put them at the core of your gospel, you've got something less than the actual gospel. Jesus loves everyone. This is true. Come just as you are. This is true. You don't have to, you know, that's why I like to dress down on Sunday mornings because I don't want anybody to feel like you have to dress up in order to be accepted in the house of God. Come as you are. I don't want you to feel like you got to get yourself right on Saturday night before coming to church on Sunday morning. I want you to just feel like you can just come as you are and receive God's blessings. God has blessings for you that you don't have room enough to receive. All three of those things are right and true, but they are not the gospel. All three of these truths are contextualized by the gospel. They are no replacement for the gospel. The order is important. Not everything biblical is good advice. For instance, Judas went and hung himself. Go and do likewise, and what thou doest, doeth it quickly. All three of those are in the Bible, but it is not good advice. And so truth must be set in the proper order in order for it to be fully true. Truth has an order. Truth has a context. Now, what is the gospel? First thing I'll say is that the gospel is the most misunderstood concept even by people who truly believe the gospel. I want to say that many of you today, by the end of this message, or before this message ends, will realize that you have misunderstood what the gospel is. But I want to say to you that that does not mean that you have not believed the gospel. 
because the gospel is misunderstood even by people who truly believe it, even by people who are truly committed to it, and even by people who have truly been saved by it. Okay, so let me set that in order because this is not, unless you believe exactly the way I'm getting ready to lay it out, you're not saved. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that as I lay this out, if you truly believe the gospel, you'll go, yeah, I truly believe that. But some of you are going to find yourselves realizing that you haven't truly believed that because there's a gospel of the church and there's a gospel of Jesus. And the gospel of the church is implicit. Nobody actually preaches it. But there's this implicit idea that to be saved, you just need to come to church and participate in the activities of the church. There's this gospel of the church that we believe leads to salvation. And let me say to you that the gospel of the church is a lie. Because coming to church does not make you a Christian any more than eating at Taco Bell makes you a Mexican. But the primary misconception about what the gospel is, is that there is a, a distinction that needs to be made between what the gospel does and what the gospel is. See, most people, if you ask them what the gospel is, they'll tell you what the gospel does. If you ask most people, what is the gospel? Even people who fully believe it, they'll say, the gospel is the message of salvation through Jesus. No, salvation is what the gospel does. Salvation is not what the gospel is. Salvation is the fruit of believing the gospel. It's the result of believing the gospel. It is not the essence of the gospel itself. Eternal life is the fruit of the gospel. Eternal life is what the gospel does. It's not what the gospel is. If you believe the gospel, you get eternal life. But eternal life is not the gospel. The gospel is the pill you must swallow. Eternal life is the effect of swallowing that pill. The gospel is the medicine. The effect of the medicine is eternal life. But most of us think that we're swallowing eternal life when we believe the gospel. That's not the, that's not the truth. What is the gospel? The gospel can be summarized in three confessions that form the heart of the biblical testimony of the Christian faith. If you do not believe these three confessions, you do not believe the gospel. If you believe these three confessions, you believe the gospel. Confession number one, Jesus is the Son of God. Confession number two, Jesus is the Christ. Confession number three, Jesus is Lord. Those three confessions put together equal the gospel. Believing the gospel leads to eternal life. And believing the gospel equals believing that Jesus is the Son of God. And Jesus is the Christ. And Jesus is Lord. If you don't believe any of those three, you don't fully believe the gospel. And what we find is that implicitly with our lives, we declare that we don't believe the gospel. Even though with our lips, we claim to believe it. The question today is not just, what is the gospel? But do you believe it? Do you believe it? Now, let's break this down a little bit. Yeah. The first confession, Jesus is the Son of God. Yeah. 
What does it mean to say that Jesus is the Son of God? To speak of Jesus as the Son of God is to speak of his virgin birth. The virgin birth presupposes the pre-existence of Jesus. To say that Jesus is the Son of God means that he did not begin to exist the moment he was born in a manger. It It means that his birth was not the beginning of his existence. John begins his gospel with these words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not comprehend it. Verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory of who? The glory as of the only begotten Son of the Father. So when you're speaking of Jesus, the son, you're speaking of the fact that he is not the son of Mary and Joseph. He's the son of God. Yes, he's the son of Mary and Joseph, but only because the Holy Spirit came upon Mary. He's actually not technically the son of Joseph. The Holy Spirit came upon Mary. This is called the Immaculate Conception. The Immaculate Conception, the incarnation, God became flesh, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It means that when you're speaking of Jesus, you're not speaking simply of a historical religious figure. If you believe he was just a prophet, you don't believe the gospel. If you believe that he was just a great religious teacher of his time, you don't actually believe the gospel. If you don't believe that he is the Son of God, that he came from heaven to earth to show the way then you don't actually believe the gospel. Now, some people would say, you know, um, Jesus never claimed that he was the son of God. That's what people said about him later. I beg to differ. He called himself the son of God all the time. Let me explain. Now, this is a Bible question, a Bible trivia question. And the person who answers it correctly gets five dollars. And Monopoly money. So the question is, um, what was Jesus' favorite self-designation? How did he refer to himself the most? What was his most prominent self-designation? You can yell it out, put it in the chat. Son of man, all the time. And if I, the son of man, be lifted up, the son of man came not to, to judge but to save right he just constantly speaks of himself as the son of man the son of man the son of man now son of man is a hebrew idiom that literally means man son of dog is dog son of man is man that's what it literally means man son of man means man however there's this passage in the book of daniel chapter 9 where daniel has a dream that makes him sick He says, in my dreams, thrones were set in place. That's the first thing that troubles him. There's more than one throne in heaven. The Ancient of Days takes his seat. That makes sense. Thousands attended him, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was set. The books were opened. And then I saw one like a son of man riding on the clouds of heaven, being brought into the presence of the Ancient of Days, and the angels of God worshipped him. This Son of Man gets enthroned at the right hand of the Ancient of Days and receives a kingdom and dominion and power, and it's said that his kingdom is forever and his dominion will never end. 
And Daniel said, when I saw this, I was sick for many days. Why was he sick? Because he thought he had seen blasphemy. When he said, I saw a son of man, he's literally saying, it looked just like a man. When I, I saw one like a son of man, and he can't even say it's a son of man. He said, it looked like a son of man. One like a son, meaning it just looked like a man. But why is he riding on the clouds of glory? Read the Old Testament. Only Yahweh rides a cloud mobile. And this man is riding the clouds of glory like he's ghost riding the whip. What in the world is happening? And then he comes into the presence of the Ancient of Days. And what happens? The angels of God start worshiping him. Worshiping a son of man? Daniel said, this is too much. I'm sick. And there's all kinds of rabbinic argumentation through the intertestamental period about the identity of this elusive, heavenly son of man. Who is this heavenly son of man? And Jesus comes on the scene and goes, I'm the son of man. The son of man that Daniel saw riding on the clouds of glory, brought into the presence of the Ancient of Days. The angels of God worshipped him, enthroned at the right hand of the Ancient of Days, receives dominion and a kingdom. That be me. He is I, and I is him, slim with the tilted brim. What's my name? Sorry about that. I, I, I forgot where I was. I, <laughs> I went back to, you know, 1990-something. You know, Every time you see Jesus refer to himself as the Son of Man, he's actually referring to himself as the Son of God. And you get to the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verses 3 and following. What does it say? Behold, he is coming, how? With clouds. And every eye will see him. Behold, he still rides the cloud mobile. He is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they that pierced him. Behold, he is coming with clouds. He is the heavenly son of man, which means he's the son of God. So don't get it twisted and talk about him like he's just a historical religious figure, like Muhammad, like Confucius, like Buddha. No, 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 no. He's like none of them. He is the preexistent son of God. Through him all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that was made. And if you don't believe that, you don't believe the gospel. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I just want to stick to Jesus loves everybody. Sure, Jesus does love everybody, but you got to start by understanding who Jesus is. Because the Jesus that you believe loves everybody may not be the Son of God. Now, let's go to Matthew chapter 16 where Jesus takes his disciples to Caesarea Philippi, which is a Greco-Roman pantheon surrounded by all these Greco-Roman gods, and he sits them down in the midst of all of these gods and asks the question, what are people saying about me? That's what Jesus asked them. Pull up Twitter. What's trending about me? Who do they say that I am? What are they saying about me on IG? What, who do men say that I am? They said, some say you're Elijah. Some say you're Jeremiah. Some say you're the prophet. Some say you're John the Baptist. Jesus thinking, wrong, wrong, wrong. Who do you say that I am? Silent for a second. And Simon raises his hand. What does he say? 
Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. He starts with, Thou art the Christ. There's two confessions here. He says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. You're not just the Son of the living God, you are the Christ. Ho Christo, or Christos. What does it mean to say that Jesus is the Christ? The word Christos in Greek, which means Christ, translated Christ in our Bible, actually doesn't make sense in the Greek language. It's one of those words that doesn't translate well. It means greasy one. The greasy one. That's what it literally means. Why? Because it's a translation of a Hebrew word that does, there's no Greek equivalent to this Hebrew word. Matter of fact, there's a letter to a, a, a Roman ruler named Pliny in which the, the author misunderstands that, they're actually, that the first century church is actually saying Christos. They th- they, he can't be saying Christos, greasy one. That don't make sense. They worship the greasy one. That, that doesn't make any sense. They must be saying Crestus. Crestus was actually a common, very common name in the Greco-Roman world. So like, they worship this guy named Crestus. That's what he says in his letter to Pliny. We don't understand what it's all about, but some dude named Crestus they worship. No, they worship a guy named Christos. Christos, the Greek term Christos, is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Hebrew term Mashiach, which is where we get our term Messiah. And it literally means anointed one. The anointed one is the savior of Israel. The anointed one was the son of David who would come and redeem them and save them from all of the oppression of the nations that they had been subjected to for for hundreds of years. The Mashiach. Remember the promise to David that he would never fail to have a son on the throne. So they were waiting for the Messiah. If you went back to first century Israel before Jesus was revealed, everybody was hoping for the coming of the Messiah. Everybody was talking about the coming of the Messiah. And if you look at the prominent religious groups in Israel at the time, you had the Pharisees, you had the Sadducees, you had the Zealots, and you had the Essenes. All four of them believed that the Messiah would come to them. All four of them had, they were like four different denominations. They did things slightly differently. They were all Israelites, but they all believed that they were the only ones that the Messiah was coming for. The Pharisees were like Republicans. Really, in a lot of ways. And the Sadducees were like Democrats. Really, in a lot of ways. Then you had the zealots, and they were like the radical, like the zealots were like assassins and and like terrorists, really. And then you had the Essenes who were separatists. Like they went out to the desert and they lived, they wore white garments and like they just ritual washings. And it was like, and all of them thought, we're doing it right. When the Messiah comes, he's coming to us. And Jesus, which one did he come to? Exactly. Because if there was one message of Jesus, is that all of y'all got it wrong. That salvation doesn't come through the Pharisees, it doesn't come through the Sadducees, it doesn't come through the Essenes, it doesn't come through the Zealots, it doesn't come through the Democrats, it doesn't come through the Republicans. I am not a part of your political nonsense. 
Remember Joshua standing outside of Jericho and God had told him to take the city and he sees the angel of the Lord standing with the drawn sword. And what does he say to the angel? Are you with us? Are you with our enemies? And the angel said, nah, nah, Mm -mm. no, no, that's the wrong question. The question is not, is God with us? The question is, are we with God? I'm with God. That's what the angel says. I've come not for you and not for them. I've come as commander of the army of the Lord. Don't get it twisted. I'm on God's side, not in your little political mess. Amen. And Jesus as the Messiah was the most scandalous concept. It was scandalous for a number of reasons. First of all, He did not fulfill any of their messianic expectations. What did they expect the Messiah to do? Raise up an army, establish a central government in Israel, overthrow the Romans, and rule the earth with a rod of iron. He'll still do that one day, by the way. But it wasn't time for that yet. The salvation that they cried out for was political, military, and governmental. And he rejected that notion. This is why he never told anybody that he was the Messiah except the woman at the well. And when he did tell her, he told her, don't tell nobody I told you that. Why? Because everybody has their idea of who the Messiah is. They're going to try to make me that Messiah. And I, I ain't about that. Had he fulfilled their messianic, and he could have. He could have raised up an army, centralized government, overthrown the Romans. No problem. But he refused. He was rejected because he refused to be the Messiah that they wanted. Which is the same reason why people reject Jesus today. Because we still believe in this gospel of Jesus loves everybody. Come as you are and receive God's blessings. So when I come as I am and I don't receive God's blessings the blessings that I thought I was going to receive, the blessings that I actually came to church to get, you know, fix my money, fix my marriage, fix my job. Crucify him. I don't need that. But instead, right here in this Matthew 16 passage, where Jesus asked his disciples this question, who am I? Who do you say that I am? And Peter, or Simon says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus first responds by commending him. Blessed are you, Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my father who is in heaven. You just spoke by revelation, meaning if you are going to know who Jesus really is, only, it's only because the father reveals him to you. But then... The scripture went on to say, Jesus began to teach his disciples that he would be betrayed, handed over to the Romans, and crucified, nailed to a cross. And Peter took him aside and rebuked him and said, Lord, it will never be. Quit talking crazy. Stop talking crazy, Jesus. Jesus says, who am I? Peter says, you're the Messiah. And Jesus says, great, let me tell you what that means. It means I'm going to suffer, be rejected, and die. And Peter says, no, 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 no. Even his own disciples who believe the gospel are still waiting for him to do the same thing the Pharisees are waiting for him to do. They believe he's the Messiah, but they're still expecting him to do what they want him to do. They, They believe the gospel, but they don't understand the gospel that they've believed. 
Jesus says, let me explain to you what my messianic ministry is. I've come not to save you from an earthly kingdom. I've come to save you from hell. I haven't come to save you from the wrath of the Romans. I've come to save you from the wrath of God. I've come to destroy death, hell, and the grave and break the curse of sin over mankind. That's what I've come to do. I've come to destroy death and bring life and immortality to light through the gospel. That is the content of my messianic ministry, to say that Jesus is the Messiah, it means that he is the only Savior. It means that salvation comes only through him, which means that if you believe that all roads lead to Rome, that you can believe in Buddha, or you can believe in Confucius, or you can believe in Mohammed, or you can believe in any way, and you still get there and it's all the same thing, then you don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. You don't believe that Jesus is the Christ. content of his messianic ministry was his suffering and death. And to believe that he is the Christ means that his suffering and his death is our only hope for salvation. There is no other way. There is no salvation in any other name but by the name of Jesus. And if the church starts to diminish its confidence in this claim, we've lost the gospel. Jesus is the Christ. And this is why every time Paul uses that term Christ, Jesus Christ, that confession, Jesus is the Christ, was so central to our Christian faith that they removed the is. And it became a proper name. Jesus the Christ became Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Christ became Jesus Christ. It began as a confession. It became a proper name because the confession was believed so thoroughly. Let me tell you something. The early Christians were willing to give their lives. They were willing to die. They were willing to be persecuted. Why? Because of their faith in this core central tenet that Jesus is the Christ. He is the only way, and it's the most scandalous message that you will ever hear preached in, Christ, in the Christian faith. It is the most scandalous component of our faith that he is the only one. But if we lose that, we've lost the whole faith. Jesus is the Christ. And then finally, the third confession, Jesus is the Lord. You find these confessions put together in multiple variations throughout the New Testament. Paul talks about Jesus Christ, our Lord. In this passage I read to you in Romans chapter 1, Paul puts all three of them in one verse, in verse 4. And who through the Spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. He's the Son of God, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Son of God, Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is the gospel. This is it. And Paul says it here, right there in Romans chapter 1, in these passages that we read, he said, I was appointed for the gospel. Now, let me tell you what the gospel is. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, our Lord. That is the gospel that I was appointed to. You believe that, you have eternal life. What does it mean to say that Jesus is Lord? Do you know what the proper translation of the word Lord literally is? Sir. Excuse me, sir. Sir, excuse me, sir. You go back to England, ancient England. Yes, my Lord. Yes, my Lord. Yes, my Lord. Yes, my Lord. There's another way of saying yes, sir. 
Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So what does it mean that Jesus Christ is the sir? It means a little bit more than that. A couple things you need to know. First, there was a group called the Masoretes. The Masoretes were translators or, or uh, transcribers of the biblical text starting in about the first century. And their job was to transcribe, to make copies of the Old Testament, the Hebrew documents of the Old Testament. But the Masoretes were so meticulous that if they made one mistake, they would scrap the whole manuscript and start again from Genesis 1-1. If they made a mistake in Deuteronomy, they started again with Genesis. Because there was a passion for making sure that they transcribed the Word of God with such precision and accuracy, not missing a single word. They were, they, it was that important to them. Why? That's how much they valued the Word of God. When you go back to the captivity of Babylon, first 722 AD, the northern kingdom of Israel is taken into captivity to Assyria. Then 586 BC, the southern kingdom of Israel is taken into captivity to Babylon. About 516, they come back from ca captivity and they rebuild the temple. But here was the question. If we're the people of God, how were we taken into captivity? How is that possible? And the answer was we broke the law. You go back to Deuteronomy 18 and you read about the blessings and the curses and God made it clear. Yeah. If we don't keep his commandments, here are all the curses that he's going to bring against us. Well, guess what? He brought all those curses against us. Why? Because we did not keep the law. This is where the phenomenon that we call Judaism was born after they came back from captivity. And this is the core of Judaism. We will never break the law again. We must be sure never to break the law again. Now, here's one thing that comes out of that. What's the first commandment? First, he says, you shall have no other gods before me. And then he says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. What he literally says is, Thou shalt not take the name of Yahweh Eloheinu in vain. Literally, he says his name there in that verse. You shall not take the name of Yahweh. Eloheinu means your God. Yahweh your God. You shall not take the name of Yahweh your God in vain. Here's how they interpreted that when they came back from captivity. We should never ever speak the name. How do we know that we're not taking it in vain? We don't speak it. The name is too holy ever to speak. So what they did was they went through the entire Old Testament, and every time the word Yahweh appeared, they replaced it with the Hebrew term meaning Lord, Adonai. Yeah. So Yahweh became Adonai. That's why our English translations say you shall not take the name of the Lord, your God, in vain. It doesn't say the Lord in the original text. It says Yahweh, yeah. your God, in vain. So all throughout the Old Testament, and the Masoretes continued this, they, it's called a circumlocution, where they replaced the name Yahweh with the title Adonai, and they did it in all caps, so that you knew when you saw this Adonai, it meant more than sir. Yeah. It meant the Lord. Yeah. You following me? Yeah. Now, there's this passage in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 and following, where Paul says, 
Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, considered it not robbery to be equal to God, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. And being found in the likeness of sinful flesh, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. There's his messianic ministry. Now, therefore God has highly exalted him, speaking of his resurrection, and given him the name that is above every name. What is the name that is above every name? Did God give him the name Jesus in his resurrection? So Paul says, in his resurrection, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and of things on the earth and of things under the earth. And every tongue confess what? Jesus Christ is what? Yahweh. To say Jesus is Lord means Jesus is Yahweh. It means Jesus is God. To declare his lordship is to declare his godship. That we're not dealing with the demigod. We're not dealing with a super powerful prophet. We're dealing with the very manifestation of God in human flesh. That in his exaltation to sit at the right hand of God, God gives him his own name. Jesus Christ is Lord. Not sir. Not prophet. He is Lord. And remember in his resurrection, when a couple of the disciples had seen him, and they go back, first the ladies saw him, and then a couple of disciples saw him, and they go back and report to the rest of the disciples, Jesus is alive, and we've seen him. And what does Doubting Thomas say? Unless I put my finger in his side and see the nail prints in his hands, I will not believe. And before he can get those words out of his mouth, Jesus appears in the room. And what does Thomas say? Jesus walks up to him and says, Thomas, put your finger here in my side. Sorry, sorry, babe. (laughs) My wife's like, you ain't Jesus. We ain't got to see your side. Cover that. My bad, my bad, my bad. And Thomas is like, no, no, I'm cool. I'm cool. No, 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 Thomas. Come put your finger in my side. I was just playing. No, no, no. Mm-mm. So look, put your finger through the nail prints in my hands. And what does Thomas do? He falls on his face and what does he exclaim? My Lord and my God. Theos kai kurios in Greek. Yahweh. Elohenu in Hebrew. My Lord and my God. Now, I'm going to bring this in for a landing. What does this all mean? How do you know if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? 
How do you know if you believe that Jesus is the Messiah? How do you know if you believe that Jesus is Lord? Number one, if you believe he's the son, the son of God, then that belief, that faith compels your worship. If you have an inner compulsion to worship him, it's because you believe he's the son of God. If you have no inner compulsion to worship him, no inclination for worship, nothing in your heart that desires to surrender your life to him, you don't actually believe he's the son of God. If you believe he's the Messiah, that compels your faith in his atoning sacrifice. If you believe he's the Messiah, the natural cry that comes out of your heart, your heart on believing that is, what must I do to be saved? If he's the Messiah, salvation belongs to him. It means that there's no self-help book, no program that can ever pull me out of the ditch that I've fallen in. Only Jesus, believing he's the Messiah, leads to the conclusion of the heart that if you don't help me, I'm lost. It leads to the desperation of the soul. I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour, I need you. Save now. Hosanna. And if you believe he's Lord, it compels your obedience. Because the conclusion that he is Lord means my life belongs to him. He not only created me, but he redeemed me. My life belongs to him. It means that I am not my own. I have been bought with a price. I must take every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. And if you have no internal inclination to obey him, you don't believe that he's the Lord. Worship, faith, and obedience are the inclinations of the heart of those who believe the gospel. And this is why in Mark 1, 14 and 15, when Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of God, he says, repent. The time has come. The kingdom of God is here. What does he mean the kingdom of God is here? Who is the kingdom? The Son, the Messiah, and the Lord. He was speaking of himself. When he said the kingdom of God is here, he meant the Son, Messiah, and Lord is up in the place right now. I am the gospel. Jesus is the gospel. But the right understanding of who Jesus is, is the gospel. And then he says, now repent and believe the gospel. Repent of what? Repent of the faulty belief that he was just a man, that he was just a prophet. Repent of the faulty belief that you can save yourself if you're disciplined enough, that you can pull yourself out of your own pit if you're disciplined enough. Repent of the false belief that you can please God by your own effort or by your own endeavor. Repent of the false belief that your life belongs to yourself, that you can make your own decisions, that you can go where you want to go, that you deserve to have it your way right away. Repent of all of that foolishness and believe the gospel. What is the gospel? Jesus the Son, Jesus the Savior, Jesus the King. And there's another component to his lordship that we need to take more time on another day to talk about. His resurrection 
his enthronement at the right hand of the Father, but his coming. His coming. Behold, he is coming to judge the quick and the dead. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him. And when he comes, he's not coming as a fairy to bless everyone. He's coming as Lord. He's coming as Christ. And he's coming as the Son of God from heaven. That is the gospel. This is what we believe. This gospel is the truth upon which the church stands or falls. This gospel has never been popular, and it will never be popular. But this is the true gospel. And the false gospel cannot save you. You can't be saved simply by believing that Jesus loves everybody, even though he does love everybody, but he loves everybody so much that he gives you the true gospel of who he is. The true revelation of who he is. And every single day, even for those of us who have believed, the same admonition is applied to us as is applied to the non-believer. Repent and believe the gospel. Because all we like sheep have gone astray, and every day there's a part of our hearts that wants to stray from the gospel, that wants to stray from the truth of who Jesus is. There's a part of me that wants to do it my way. There's a part of me that thinks I can save myself, that I can pull myself out of the pit, and I've got to come back to the reality of who Jesus is every day. That is the Christian life, and that coming back to the gospel every day is the essence of what we call discipleship which will be the subject of next Sunday's sermon. Bow your heads with me and let's pray.